Christian conferences. Hmm. Why the hell do we even have them? More importantly, are they even still relevant? With all the issues of race and gender and sexuality and sexual orientation, church to me too movement, Black Lives Matter, are Christian conferences really addressing any of these issues? And more importantly, who really cares about this stuff anymore outside of white mainline evangelicals? Hmm. Well, sounds like a great episode to start 2019 with on Profane Faith. Come on! He said, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations. I think she's a liar and I think she deserves mockery. It was something about when I put this hat on, it made me feel like Superman. Black lives are very important. White lives are very important. And to me, all lives are very important. Very, very important. Damn! This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, hey, happy new year. Feliz Nueva Año of the whole nine. 2019, here we are. Welcome back, folks. This is your host, Dan White Hodge with Profane Faith. And it is a new year, and I have new inquiries and new questions and some great new interviews coming up, of which I wanted to start the year off with uh, some perspectives on Christian conferences. Um, I have been actually very curious about the longitudinal, uh, well, I don't even the, the longevity or longitudinal uh, aspects of it, but I've, but I've been very curious about what is the purpose of Christian conferences, especially ones that are continually all white. I mean, it hasn't really been until the last, I don't know, um, well, I'd probably say within the last five years that more Christian conferences have started to look and wanted to invite, even to invite more people of color. But that's after, you know, backlashes and, you know, Twitter campaigns and and people writing in and, you know, in low numbers, right, that, you know, the folks started to pay attention because folks have been talking about representation and diversity in, in Christian conferences for a long time, as you can imagine. Um, I remember personally, well over 25 years ago, uh, having conversations about this, um, you know, when I was a youth pastor and, and trying to talk with folks like youth specialties about diversifying and whatnot. So the conversation is not old. Uh, I mean, the conversation is old. It's not new. Um, and 
it's something that I think as a speaker, as somebody who, uh, you know, gets a little money on the side to go out and speak and do all those nice things and, and whatnot, I ask myself, uh, what what then, where do I fit into that? Where do, where do I fit into that? Where do, where do other folks of color fit into that? Um, are we just at a point in time where maybe we just don't even need them anymore? What about with the advent of YouTube and podcasts and, um, you know, TEDx talks and all that? I mean, can't we just get the knowledge we want out of that? Or is there something bigger to this? What about community? What about meeting up with folks that you really only get a chance to see once a year? So I guess I'm just trying to wrestle through some of these questions here, um, because as someone who was once upon a time a habitual Christian conference attender, I've had a chance now to step back, mainly because of the cost of them. I had organizations paying for me, and now um, I get institutional funds, which is a privilege I get. Um, but I only get institutional privileges for one conference, so I can't just show up to other conferences. But I find that there are hundreds, if not thousands, per year that engage different subjects and different topics. And so I wanted to have a conversation around that. And so I brought together guests that need no introduction. They have all been on the show before. J.R. Forsteros, Kathy Kong, Kate Sanchez. And they all bring a unique perspective on how we engage and how we look at Christian conferencing. I think it's important that we look at this particular aspect because, one, I think in the next 10 years, how we define um, Christian conferences is going to be changing a lot. I think that how we uh, envelop uh, different speakers, the sage on the stage, so to speak, uh, is going to be changing. Uh, how we look at expertise, I think with uh, new technology and new media, uh, we have a different form of what conferences can look like. I also think that with that, you can also begin to think through how do we solve some things? Are conferences actually solving anything? Are they actually putting together resources that that they, they, they can follow and are there metrics that show what it is that's actually being done after somebody leaves a conference or are they just another show that we can attend that are actually very expensive shows all these things are things that have been wandering around in my mind so I am thankful for my three guests to come on and to have this conversation here at the beginning of 2019 and New Year and to kind of wrestle around some of those things um, and what those might mean for us listening, both Christian, non-Christian alike. What is the purpose of conferencing? Uh, something that is well over 150 years old. Uh, conferences have their roots in Western ideology, uh, but the idea of coming together is nothing new. As we all know, community is important to the existence of humanity and to human beings. We like being in groups, um, but in this divided world uh, in that we live in, particularly politically and religiously, I'm, I'm curious, do those things still hold up? Do we not? Uh, what is the fear of folks, right, inviting certain people uh, to the table to shake things up? Are we allowing folks to shake things up or are we again, once again, just catering to the money and wanting to be soothed, if you will, by ideas and speakers that we already consider to be great? Huh? That's a good way to start off the year. So without any further ado, I wanted to invite you in on a conversation that Kathy, Kate, and JR and I had 
and really begin to kind of wrestle and sit with some of these things and ideas as it relates to conferencing and particularly what the future of Christian conferencing looks like. Yeah, check it out. About in conferences, Kathy. Let me let me start with you. <laughs> Why me? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I'm not. I'm not sure, and I'm not sure what conferences in general do in terms of trying to track their participants to actually follow up. Okay. Right? So, um, and you and I have been at conferences, and uh, and I think the the purpose of different conferences is different. So I think that's also tricky. So it, is passion done? They they were just running a multi-site conference. Yes. Oh, really? Okay. I don't know if it was running concurrently or if it was like a multi-site kind of thing, but I think passion was just happening. And I didn't realize that passion was still around. I, and I just came back from Urbana 2018. Yes. And, um, and I'm not sure what kind of, tracking and follow-up would be able to give great data to show what happens one year, five year, 10 years down the road to see, like particularly with Urbana, how many students from say 2018, five, 10 years down the road actually decide to go into some sort of missions vocation. Yeah. Um, and I know numbers were down for Urbana. I don't know if numbers have changed over the years for something like Passion, but I know just from storytelling that numbers at those historically big arena-type conferences have been up and down. And, and part of it is just I think they're very expensive. Yes, yes. And I want to definitely get to that, like price and what it costs to travel, I mean, because travel is, is, is no joke. Um, and it's just real quick. I mean, so, so Kathy, can you explain, like, our back? Because there's, there's so many conferences. I guess that's the other thing. It's like I, it's difficult for me to, to to keep up with, you know, the different names of conferences. So Urbana happens every three, four years? Every three years. And so it's uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, North America, IFES, so International um Fellowship of Evangelical Students. So it it's run out of InterVarsity USA. It's our triennial missions conference. And okay. so the focus is on missions, whether or not participants commit to going overseas, that they are called to evangelize. Okay. Think about their vocation, whatever it is in terms of missions. And so most of the exhibitors are different mission organizations, um, Christian nonprofits. And, uh, and so I think in that respect, it's very different than say a, like a passion conference. Okay. Okay. Which I've never been to. So I can't speak from experience, but it looks it looks very feel good. Well, yeah, that's that, my understanding of like the Passion Conference specifically is that it's essentially a, like a postmodern tent revival. Okay. Uh, yes, yes. 
or maybe actually just a modernist tent revival on skinny jeans to be that's probably more fair <laughs> a modernist tent revival in skinny jeans okay okay um i've never heard of that uh i i well i mean i heard of urbana and whatnot um but jr what about you and i see just kate just uh logged on uh she uh she is there kate hey hey, hey. You know, and then, I mean, because there's also the diversity factor. And then, of course, we just brought up the price factor as well. What are, what are some of your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, you know, so I would say that for me, in my early in my ministry career, conferences were really, really important for me. Um, I was not in a place where I was getting exposed to a lot of new ideas in my regular work rhythms. Okay. And I didn't go to seminary. So I didn't have access even from like seminary professors. I had undergraduate professors who gave me some stuff. But once I graduated from undergrad, I didn't I didn't have the channels built. And honestly, one of the things I didn't really learn in my formal education was how to build channels to bring new resources to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, di- I didn't have access to a lot of new ideas outside of attending conferences. And so there were two major conferences that I attended every year, and that was the the Leadership Summit at Willow Creek and the Catalyst Conference in Atlanta, which was uh, is actually like a, a sister conference, I think, to Passion. I know Andy Stanley and Louis Giglio are pretty good friends, and they kind of, I, I think they at least spearheaded those conferences early on. Um, I also have been to Q, which is another uh, a conference that that is run by that same kind of crew of people. Uh, and those were honestly the places that I got the most new ideas that actually shaped me and the way I, I pursued my vocation. Okay. Uh, but there came a point and I think, I think it was one of those things like when couples break up and they say like, it's not really anyone's fault. We just grew in different ways. Like, I think that's what happened with me in Christian conferences. Um, at the same time that I was needing a different sort of resourcing, they also, I think, were deciding those particular kinds of conferences uh, were, were deciding that they wanted to do something that went in a completely different direction. So neither of us stayed where we were, but we both also went in different directions. Um, and specifically, Unfortunately, I think it was that they but the the conferences started leaning a lot more to the right theologically. Okay. And uh and they quit taking risks. Uh one of the things I really appreciated about the conferences when I that I attended when I was in my 20s was that they they actually worked pretty hard uh to bring in a plurality of voices. Uh, at least the Catalyst Conference did. Uh, the, the the Willow Creek Conference brought in what that did for me was they brought in sacred and secular leaders. Okay, and so that really helped me break down that wall between sacred and secular in my own life. You know, because I was like, oh man, I'm learning a lot from this person who doesn't have any sort of faith commitment um, and who is here just because their ideas are good and they're here like on the merit of their ideas. Um, whereas. And I remember the year that the Catalyst Conference took a sharp turn away from diversity. They had Cornell West on the on the docket, which hello, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. For for evangelical Christians to bring Cornell West and give him the platform and then take your hands off the wheel. <laughs> You're right. That, that's like relatively. Uh, and I mean, I I was aware of of uh, of. Cornell West and was really excited to hear what he was going to say to us, you know, and then apparently they got some pushback from a large conservative donor. And so they actually turned it into a video interview where they went to him, video interviewed him and then edited it up 
so that he shared a couple of inspiring quotes about Martin Luther King Jr. And that was about it. Oh, um, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh. it, and then at that same conference, they gave Mark Driscoll a, an oh. unregulated platform. Yeah. So, oh. yeah. Hey. And so I like that, right. That, that thing, I was like, okay. And I knew, I knew people who worked at the conference. And so I knew enough of the behind the scenes to know that that was not the original plan. And that was done specifically to protect funding and to appeal to a conservative donor base. Hmm. And, and so I was like, okay, so again, all of this stuff you've been talking about leaders take risks and leaders step out and leaders stand up for what's right, no matter what, like it's really a lot easier to say than it is to do. And when you had a chance to do it, you didn't. So like, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that I have a lot left to learn here, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, and, and, and then as I just, as I've, as I've looked at the docket over the last, that was, I don't even remember how long ago that was. Uh, it was at least seven or eight years ago. So I've looked at the speaker lineups at that conference in particular since then, it's pretty clear that are just going for like the Christian celebrity speaker circuit. Okay. You know, so they'll bring in Francis Chan and Christine Kane and, you know, some of the, which again, great speakers, right? They, they have great things to say, but, but there's definitely a level of like, this is more about come to this conference to see your favorite band play, not to hear new music that, that will challenge you. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and that's just not what I need. Uh, I'm not sure it's what any of us need in a world of podcasting and YouTube videos. <laughs> I can, I can hear those folks speak whenever I want. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, I need I, what I want out of if I'm going to go to a conference, uh, then I'm going to go somewhere where I have the opportunity to be exposed to people who think differently than I do, who have. Uh, so so uh, just to go back, I mean, this is this is way outside the box, but the 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 conference where Kate and Dan and I all met was <laughs> AARSBL. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Right? And that was so great. I mean, I, we all met at a panel on Luke Cage. Uh, you yep. know, <laughs> and it was amazing. That, it was amazing. Um, but, but that was such a great place. Cause I knew whatever room I walked into, I was going to be around a bunch of people who didn't see the world the way I did, who came from a bunch of different backgrounds and experiences and who, if I would be willing to enter into a, uh, respectful, kind conversation, um, where I wasn't just trying to be right and show how smart I was that I was going to learn a lot. And, and that, like, that's, that's what is helpful to me where I am now, not just someone that's up there telling me that things are going to be okay and my way's right. And I don't need to change, you know? Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's part of it is trying to figure out who's the target audience for all of these Mm -hmm. conferences and has their understanding of the target audience changed as the audience has changed. Right. Because like you, Jr., you were the target audience for many of these conferences over the years. And, you know, you put it quite nicely. It was, you know, it's not you, it's me. Maybe it's both of us. <laughs> that kind of like mutual Dear John letters. But in the end, is it also conferences not keeping in step with what's changing in the world. And, and I think that's where for me, like Urbana is not necessarily for me. It's primarily for college students and I'm not a college student. (laughs) I have had 21 years of vocational ministry and, 
launched a college student into adulthood. I have one college student, you know, so I'm not the target audience. And so what I'm looking for and what I'm drawing and critiquing is going to be very different than the average 18 to 21 year old who's going to their first Urbana and some of them never having gone to a large conference And again, that connects to the whole cost and travel and who's the target audience kind of thing. So, but I hear you. I mean, I've I've looked at how these conferences continue to have the same names. And I think, my goodness, how many more amazing ideas can these same people have? Yeah. Well, but but again, I don't, I think that for me, what that has demonstrated is that attending these conferences that are doing, that are booking those speakers is not about new ideas anymore. Yeah. Right. It's about, uh, it's a stadium tour of, it's like when journey goes on a stadium tour, right? Like I guess best, best case scenario, someone's going to bring their kid and they're going to be like, Oh, this is that old band. You like, Oh, they're pretty cool. Right. But like, you're not finding like new people that are just wandering into the pavilion going, oh, there's live music playing tonight? I guess I'll check this, you know, up-and-coming band out. Like, no, like, it's, they're going to come and play all their hits. And and that's that's fine. Like, there's there's nothing I don't think inherently wrong with that. Um, but that, that becomes more about comfort and safety than about moving forward. Yeah. This is good. This is good. Let me, so, Kate, let me come to you, because you bring a completely different perspective um, on this take, uh, and, and particularly, I mean, you, you've come out of academia, but I also see you at, at I know you've been to Comic-Con. Yes. Uh, a lot of, I've actually gone to nine conventions this, uh, in 2018 alone, Wow, um, nice. both for fun and covering on press passes. So I've, as I've also worked with vendors at, like on conventions. So I have a pretty good idea of like what goes behind, like money wise into spaces and yes. how you, how you deal with it that way. Yes. So break that down a little bit then. I mean, obviously we're talking about the Christian world here, but you have a completely different perspective. And I'd also love for you to comment on some, you know, like uh, what you see, you know, in that, because we did meet at AAR. I mean, I'm a big fan of it. Um, But I do think even academic conferences, right, they have their cliques and their niches and their, you know, all that (laughs) hierarchy and all that stuff like that. So so what are your, some of your thoughts as gosh, there's so much here to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So one of the things that I've learned working the convention circuits, um, is I, I'm editor in chief of my own website with me about like 20 something contributors. So I also organize, um, I guess like essentially speaking with other companies, getting the press passes for people putting forward work and the way they work is essentially, um, tickets mean a lot. So ticket sales mean a lot, but the largest piece is your vendor. Um, so the way a conference or a convention structure works typically is that a, a, a convention decides to happen. They then get vendors to buy space. Once the vendors buy space, then um, as well as whoever partners with them, then that money is the money that they use to actually um, get all of the costs. So to pay the convention center, to get deals on hotel rooms, um, to pay talent and guests, 
um, all that type of stuff. And then any sort of ticket is used to either pay what they overspent or to go into a fund for the following year. Um, and what that means is that Vendors to a lesser extent, but more so um, anybody who has put in large sum of money, a large sum of money to help this happen, obviously has the most control over programming. Like if um, not necessarily programming, but who's there, right? So if uh, Twitch, which is a broadcasting streaming service that gamers use, is the main your main staple at a convention, then Facebook gaming is not going to get a spot there or Mixer is going to get a small spot, which are their competitors. Um, so from that angle and just like a purely secular context, like that's kind of how the setup goes on who gets them, who gets main ticketing is mm. how much money did you put in? Um, as well as who are your competitors. And then from a personal standpoint, um, I, I was terrified of AAR because <laughs> um, it was actually my first AR where I met, met you guys at, um, and I was scared in all honesty, because if you go into one section, you have a whole bunch of suited old white guys who are there for SPL <laughs> most of the time and they kind what? of bump what? into no, you right. and they don't say, excuse me. And they look at you like you should move out of the way. And of course I don't, I don't dress up. That's not my thing. You, I, I shouldn't have to be wearing a pantsuit for you to take what I'm saying seriously. Amen. Um, that's my view on life. Um, so that's its own thing. But the great thing about AAR was I was actually able to go into panels like the Luke Cage panels and pick my programming to go to places where I did feel safe. So I understand that perspective. But I also walked into places where um, not everybody on the panel looked alike, not like everybody who was talking about Luke Cage, like just using Luke Cage panels and, and as as an example, um, varying degrees of comic knowledge on that panel varying degrees of show knowledge, varying degrees of like uh, pop culture knowledge in general. And like for me going into a space, like I feel safer in the secular um, because in all honesty, mm. like just Christian conferences scare me, like mm. legitimately scare me. I do never, I, I don't want to go to one. I don't want to be in, in that type of room. I, as a Latina and as an atheist, I I don't <laughs> I don't feel like I can voice my opinions or voice like any sort of if it's actually like a, an academic discussion. I don't feel safe, safe speaking, um, which is how I felt when I went to a lot of the um, or not a lot. I went to like maybe two SBL panels because I had friends presenting um, and I had just so happened to actually have insight on those things. But I didn't speak versus the Luke Cage panel where I didn't shut up. Um, so <laughs> I mean, I don't know if this answers any of your question. It was a very broad question and I'm just kind of like no, this spilling is my words out here. Um, but I've, I've had such a trajectory in life that explicitly religious conventions are not a place where I feel and I don't want to say comfortable, but like actually safe, like physically safe being. Um, I, I And so for me, even it took until like the second, like the end of the second day of AAR for me to actually feel like I was okay to be there. Um, and it took meeting guys like you, honestly, to see like, oh, okay, this is, these are my peeps. Like these are people I can chill with, these people I can talk with, these people I can open up with and actually like share ideas with. Um, and so to that point, I understand why um, just kind of like what you were talking about, JR, like going to the Journey concert. Like 
sometimes you want that safety. Um, but at the same time, like that safety comes at a price for you. So you have to understand who may be, who may feel out of place in that, in, in that area. Yeah. Um, and it's being aware of that. Like, I'm aware that there are probably some things that I go to that may be like, oh, for it may be like the one place a white dude doesn't feel comfortable speaking up. I mean, he probably does talk, but like, he probably doesn't feel the most comfortable speaking up because of like the subject matter and the topic and the positionality of the people in the room and the levels of knowledge. Um, in akin to that, like this also ha happens in secular spaces. I don't like going to conventions by myself because a lot of the times I'm one of the few, we always make the, uh, we, to put it in context, we always make the joke, gaming conventions are the only conventions where there's no line for the women's restroom. Um, like <laughs> my husband has to like go to the bathroom on the seventh floor that isn't being used and I can walk in anyone I want. Cause there's just not that many women there. Um, that that's changing, but it's also like, I don't feel safe sitting in a line by myself where like the, um, they're called enforcers at like certain things like PAX. Um, PAX is a, a large gaming convention. Um, they instruct people to stand. They literally say, have no personal space. I would not feel comfortable standing and waiting in that line by myself because I'm going to be surrounded by people who I don't know what can happen, right? Um, and I think very similarly, like that happens to us, like physical safety and emotional safety, like they kind of go hand in hand. And I think that's why people gravitate towards um towards conferences where everybody's going to think like them and there is a space for that but i also think that they need to understand what they are and understand that like where is it it is if it's a safe space for that type of thought then you're probably not progressing any type of thoughts outside of that well that, i mean that brings Does up any the, of that makes sense yes <laughs> no absolutely this is because this is that brings up the next question is 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 what one, what is the big fear? This is a question my wife and I have been, been having. It's like, you know, in my dealings with my current employer and uh, and just and, and particularly other conferences where I've been invited to speak. Um, uh, and, and I'll say this as somebody who I, I would consider myself on on a different list. I am not Francis Chan. I am not a safe Negro uh, to invite to 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 Christian conferences. I mean, I'm you know, I'm I'm still below the rack. I'm still not being invited to, be, to speak at no no main panel at AAR. But that's I'm not tripping off of that. But I guess I'm saying is like, what is the fear of of conferences where there is or particularly Christian conferences or, or religious conferences where you do. You have an edited video of, of, of Cornell West, which is like, ah, I mean, OK, and MLK and all that stuff. But then, like you said, Jr., we'll give an entire thing to Driscoll. Um, and, and it's not just Driscoll, but it's like that that goes on. Right. It's like um, how many how many folks invited? Uh, what's his name from Willow Creek, you know, to come and speak on leadership yeah. and and. Oh. And, you know, being this or being this father and us and, you know, and then the ongoing enclave of of men not wanting to be in a room alone with other women, you know, but then oh, that leaves God. other women. Out. I mean, so I, I'm just yeah. saying, what is the fear? Because I think, Kate, you said it. If, if, if we're just feeling comfortable, then like these ideas aren't really necessarily getting spread, which is one of the reasons why I love going to AAR, because I feel like every year it pushes something forward and I, I can walk away mm -hmm. with learning something. But I don't necessarily get that at, 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 at other Christian conferences. What anyone care to comment on that? Maybe I'm maybe I'm just ranting. So like I 
I obviously haven't gone to them, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it just sounds like they know their audience. It's like just like what JR said, like Journey isn't going to come and do a new set of 10 brand new songs because then their audience is going to get mad. Um, and I think it all just comes down to where your money comes and comes from and what keeps this conference funded. If you upset your base, you upset your audience, you no longer have a conference. Yeah. That's exactly right. So the money. Mm-hmm. All right. Money makes the world go round and sideways. Things happen, right? It, it, you, Kate, like you said, you, you can't run a conference without vendors, without big sponsors, without ticket sales. And so you, at any scale, really. And so I do think that the conferences know their audience and they know what will sell, which sounds horrible when you connect that to Christianity and religion and faith, mm-hmm. right? Like, ew. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So then let's, 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 and then let's, let's take another look at it. So money, I mean, obviously that's a, that's a big thing. I mean, I've been to plenty of conferences where, I mean, I started off with, um, what was it? Uh, urban youth workers. Well, I mean, even go back even further than that. I mean, I started, you know, the first time I heard of CCDA, for example, Christian Community Development Association, it was this, you know, offshoot of other evangelical conferences. Um, and then I think what they started in the 80s. And so I picked up on it probably in the mid 90s. Um, and it was at first this, oh, wow, we, we can go and we can, you know, there's other black folk here. It's not just white folks up there. But then I feel like there was a, a, a sudden shift um, in, in how we looked at that. And then, you know, then there arose Urban Youth Workers Institute, but then I feel like, okay, again, money is a big thing. I mean, I know for Urban Youth Workers, just, just to rent the space, um, at uh, Azusa Pacific, you know, uh, I think it was like $250,000 just to rent the space. And that wasn't including the food or all that stuff like that. So we talk about the price. Is the price even worth it? Are we, re- and it sounds like we're just recycling some of the same ideas, but then are there other conferences that we should maybe be a part of? I, I use AAR as, as an example. Um, I know for me, that's, that's really the, the only conference I go to. I haven't been to Comic-Con. I used to go to the NAM show, which for those of you who don't know, National Association of Music Merchants, um, They've gotten a lot stricter lately, though, man. You used to be able to be just walk on in and, you know, get a name badge and whatever. But now they're like, nope. <laughs> and um, so that's a big music industry thing where, you know, like it, it, anyways. So there was there was always something good going on there. I mean, I guess I'm trying to figure out what do you all think the purposes then of some of these conferences are? And are we now missing a diverse section of of folks because of so many demographic changes and whatnot. Will it even be worth somebody who's 21, 20 years old to go to a conference when there's YouTube and podcasts? What do y'all think? Well, that that's where I've been really reconsidering in the last year or two. Like what would even make me want to go to a conference? Um, because exactly what you said, right? Like I I've actually built for myself some channels of resourcing now that I feel like at least compared to a lot of other pastors around me, I, I am getting more and better resources than a lot of them because I've built those channels for myself. Uh, now it's certainly not saying that I, I have found all of the resources there are to find, but I already have more, more books, more articles, more podcasts in a year to consume than I am able to consume. 
So, so now it's, now I'm trying to curate. So, so again, I'm like, why do I, do I really need conferences to provide that for me anymore? No, not like it, certainly not like I did when I was in my, when I was 25, you know? Um, so now I'm thinking it's a lot more about workshop kind of avenues. That would be much more interesting to me if I could sit down, uh, like Dan, like you, uh, again, your book that came out last year, Homeland Insecurity, fantastic book, really provocative, um, and really paradigm shifting when it comes to how to implement mission work of any kind in a local church context. I, I mean, I would love to hear you speak just cause I like to hear you speak. <laughs> but um, I would be significantly more interested in an experience that I could pay for where I knew I was going to be getting to sit in a group of maybe 10 mission or church leaders and you and really work through some of the big ideas in the book in a way that we're processing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that would be much more, quote unquote, valuable to me than just getting to hear you speak. Yeah. Um, and I just think about that, like with all, any book that I read, I'm like, well, yeah, uh, uh, Dominic Gilliard's uh, rethinking incarceration, right? Would I love to hear him speak about that book? Yeah, but I've read his book. So like, I'd be actually way more interested in getting to have some kind of a conversation or a workshop with him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about now that would be more, more, more worth my time, so to speak, is is not talking heads on stages, but places where we can actually dive in. And, and again, back to AAR, I mean, that was one of my favorite things about the papers, right? Was like, you got to hear someone present, but then we got to ask questions. Um, yeah, so. I was going to say too, like from from my perspective, obviously an outside perspective, I'm trying to like ground myself here because I, I, I ultimately like I, the only reason I went to so many conventions was because I was working them. I was doing Mm. press things. I was covering things. I was, um, I was doing that. But the other aspect for me for conventions and even conferences is community Mm -hmm. in all honesty, like the people that I see one time a year. Um, but also, and I think, um, JR is also right on the money, the people that I talk to. Um, I think the most, the most, uh, influential conference that I've been to in, in, in an academic setting was, um, it was a media studies conference that was an unconference model, which students, you know, um, PhD students and professors, like they didn't present papers necessarily, but they presented ideas and talked about them. And I think that like when you're, and I don't think that this may necessarily be perfect for academia because I think academia is still years behind on what it means to be social media savvy or necessarily <laughs> tech area savvy. But like as people start getting more involved in tweeting and blogging and YouTube videos and all that stuff, like the value of individual papers lessens but the value of discussion rises in my opinion, because I can follow somebody and I can get, um, it's had happened this year. Actually, I was, um, I met this group called Latinx and gaming and they're just Latinx in, in, in the gaming industry. And if, I'm sorry, if, if you don't know what Latinx is, Latinx is a general neutral term, um, for Latino or Latina because the Spanish language is gendered. Um, this includes, um, this both removes gender, but also includes non-binary folks into that description, uh, description. Come on. Um, so it's as a Latinx community within, um, within the game industry where I, 
interacted with them. I saw their ideas. I saw their mission statements. And then I went to a meetup with them and I discussed it and I talked to them about it. And I talked about, about my position as like an up and coming, like I bet I'm not, I'm not a reporter. I don't know. <laughs> I guess like games journalists, I do game reviews and con reviews and that type of stuff, like con coverage and how it's rough to position yourself as Latina in this. Cause like, am I talking too loudly? Am I being like, you know, <laughs> like all of these, all of the code switching that goes into it. And, and so we got to take a kernel, like the idea, right. The kernel of what is it to be Latinx in gaming and by meeting up with each other and deciding, deciding to, unpack these ideas and find support we were actually able to push ourselves and find new directions to go um like i have an entire network that i now feel that i reach out to if i have issues and i have started new projects of my own like i'm currently like um i'm compiling a list of different latinx game developers and stuff that i can cover for my site um and so I think as the value of like long form ideas decreases, like there's a higher value in talking about things because the thing about a paper or a book, you know, I, I still have respect for them, right? Like I've left academia, but I still have respect for them, but they don't allow that pushback immediately. They don't push an idea forward. Um, they can be the catalyst for it, but unless somebody's sitting around a table with you and bringing up their questions and talking with you about it, it stops, right? It's an idea, it gets taught in a class, there's some classroom discussion and that's it. Um, and when you have panels that don't really allow for extensive Q&A, the same thing happens. And I think at least in my experience, and I have a pretty negative experience in academia, so again, I have my biases. Um, being too critical, if you look a certain way, like I've, I've had a guy in my program say that my ethnicity was causing me to ask questions about his study of Christians in Houston. And I was wow. just like, mm, <laughs> no, wow. it, it was, it was a legitimate question. Um, <laughs> oh my but like that, that type of defensiveness that is bred into academia and that type of um, competitiveness is really detrimental to the, to the free flowing of ideas. And so I think when you create a, a space that is safe, yes, you do that to make sure that you can have tough discussions or, or you, that you can have discussions on a subject, but you need to say, am I making this a safe space to just talk about what I think and not receive pushback? Or am I making this a safe space to actually ask tough, tough questions and everybody who has entered this space has agreed to push themselves and have discussions and debates and expand their knowledge. And I think that that's where you run into two types of settings, right? Like you run yeah. into something that is only there because you want to be preached at and you want to hear somebody on a, on a, on a screen, talk to you, or you're there because you want to actually gain something and leave with something that pushes your idea in a different way because you had a discussion with somebody of an opposing viewpoint. And I think personally, I think the lab, the former is not very helpful other than it just gives somebody a peace of mind to keep thinking the way that they think. Well, this is okay. So this is, this is good. This is exactly what I was thinking about. Okay. So I mean, okay. I mean, that's that 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 hits the nail on the head. So, Kathy, I'm I'm about to come to you here in a second. Um, but I, I'm curious then, because see, I'm I'm all about that. So, as as an educator at heart, I mean, I want to not just move ideas forward, but actually educate someone so to to an action, right? Like, okay, we're if we're going to really improve something, like you said, and so one of the best 
pedagogical books. I try to read one a year, but a lot of them start to repeat. But one of the best that I've read <laughs> um, is, I think, Jose Baldwin. It's uh, called Teaching Naked. Um, and it really, he so he approaches teaching and in the classroom as gaming. He uses a lot of gaming theory in understanding how particularly this generation learns. And one of the things he talks about is like moving away from right this the old saying the sage on the stage you know rather you know whether as you know kind of almost looking at a coach a coach's model like let me let me get you in front let me get you engaged in it rather than like i was taught as a professor to lecture when I finished mm-hmm. my PhD program, that was what I was taught. You got to get good lectures together, got to hit on those points and stuff. But by and large, now, <laughs> if I talk past 15 minutes, I, my students are lost, especially in the morning classes. They are just, they're glazed over. They ain't getting anything. Um, so I'm curious just how much conferences just have to do with just how we learn and be um the intersectionality of all that, it's like, do we just, not we, but in general, do do folks prefer white men up from up front talking about whatever expertise it is that they have? I mean, I think about in technology and, you know, I watch a lot of Science Channel or whatever, but even in, even in, I just watched this interesting documentary on Facebook um, uh, on uh, their whole, the whole privacy thing that Frontline did, but I didn't see much diversity. He's <laughs> like everybody they yeah. talked with. I mean, well, only old white men have expertise, Dan. Don't you know this? That's right. <laughs> right. Is it genetic? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just curious, Kathy, what do you think? I mean, and especially as a speaker, who gets invited to these things? I mean, because I, I mean, I mean, in all transparency, I mean, I just, I don't get invited to that much. So, um, so I'm really, I mean, I'm mean, on a personal setting. I mean, I'm trying to rebrand myself to move away from Christianese type of stuff. Um, but I don't know, Kathy, what about you? I mean, you, I, I was at one conference where we actually met and, you know, and it was, you know, they, they just snowballed. I mean, they just, it just turned into this thing of, so basically Kathy came out to a conference that I was a part of that I'm no longer a part of anymore. Um, and we were talking on race and of course they invited her and, and Soonshan, uh, you know, thinking, Oh, they're Asians. They'll, they'll be, they'll be safe and, and they'll be nice and, and, and mellow and everything, which was anything but that. And so, um, everybody was just pissed off at Kathy because she just named the, the crap in the room. So I'm just curious, you know, about the, 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 the person up front. I mean, is, you know, how much does race and gender play into all that? Does that make sense, Kathy? Yeah, no, it absolutely makes sense. And I I think it plays into it a lot more than people want to acknowledge or are comfortable acknowledging. And, and you know, my experience is both as a speaker and as someone sitting in an audience. So when I'm sitting in an audience, I'm also critiquing, right? I'm observing and going, wow, there are no there are no native speakers up there and there are eight men and two women and the women are both white. Like that's also going on for me. Not, and not only as somebody who might be sitting in the audience, but even as a speaker, one of the questions that I often ask, if I know if it's for a conference, who else has, who else have you extended an invitation to? Um, And Mm. I think what's difficult is so People don't know what they don't know. 
until yeah. they're mm-hmm. until they're confronted with it. And so, yeah. um, so if conferencing and conferences don't shift, and the audience does not intentionally seek out different types of learning experiences, they won't know. They will only know the big name speakers and the fancy lights and the loud things. That's all they will know. And then that also translates even into like the workshops and the seminars. I'm with you, Dan. I, I, I have expertise. I don't want to be the expert in the room, (laughs) right? Because I don't think that I've learned everything there is to know about X, Y, and Z. And so when I propose a seminar and I talk with the people who are doing the sound and they have to do the mic running, I tell them, I actually am only wanting to take about 15 minutes tops to set the stage why this topic is important. And usually it's in the context of a Christian conference. So why is say civic engagement important? Why is having fluency in um, race conversations important? And then I feel like my job is to open up the conversation so that I can create an environment. And it may be the for the first time for some of these folks to have somebody who has some expertise lead questions from the audience to one another, right? So I don't want to be the only one answering questions. I also think that I have something to learn from people who are interested in that topic. I also think that that's not the norm. Hmm. (laughs) So again, Will I get invited back? I don't know, because if that's not something that they're comfortable with or have experienced, and that wasn't the expectation, then maybe my uh, the evaluations for my session will not come back as strong, right? So, I, so it's yeah. about me, it's about audience, it's about trying to scratch an itch, but also let them know that there's something else that they're missing um, in that context. And, and at some level, I think the big stadium conferences in part, just because of cost are going to have to die. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cause they're yeah. just, they're yeah. so expensive. Travel is so expensive, but Kate, I really appreciated what you had to say about community, right. And actually interacting with people whether they are people you have only known online or you Mm -hmm. meet for the first time in person and then continue that relationship online because you only go to the conference once a year or, you know, whatever. I think there's a, a, an important element to that, that we are able to make human connection with like-minded people who are also interested in learning and pushing and challenging thought. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know where else you can get that over time. So there's also something unique about a conference where, right, you can sit down for like the after conference meetings mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, grab a beverage or 
you know, stand in line and have a conversation, go your separate ways, and then maybe run into each other again. Hmm. So that there's something I, uh, that I personally appreciate that's very kind of face-to-face, organic. You can have different experiences and then bounce them off of somebody. I think that that's just Im- important human connection. But I think in the in the context of these big stadium conferences, particularly Christian conferences, I just don't know how you can go to them very often. And I usually, I only go cause I'm a speaker. <laughs> right. I don't, I, I'm not a regular, like I go to these conferences because I love them. It's just, it's cost prohibitive. Yes. I mean, I just to kind just of like to- chime in on that too. Like, I, I, I love hearing what you're talking about and what you love about it. Cause that's why I love and have loved going to like secular conventions, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, comic conventions and gaming conventions, because a lot of people have this, like a lot of people have a negative view of them. Like, Oh, it's a whole bunch of nerds and cosplay and they're just going to talk about their favorite comic book character. Um, that doesn't actually happen. There are actually a lot of academics who come and speak at these things. Like I've been at a psychology of Batman panel. I've been Mm. on a using gaming to teach elementary education and how you can utilize the achievement system that kids are using nowadays to help you in the classroom. Um, I have like that type of stimulating conversation in, in my opinion, the most academic conversation that I've had has actually happened at non-academic conferences no mm. offense to AAR or yeah, yeah. or like it's <laughs> it's just because there's no there's no stakes right yeah. like you're you're not representing your university like you don't have to worry about um are you gonna be invited back to the big one because you didn't cite Foucault in the thing you were talking about right. like, <laughs> that's that that's nowhere it is just this is what I have put together on this topic with four other people and we've talked for 15 minutes and now for the rest of the 45, we're going to answer questions. Come up and ask questions. Um, One of the best panels I've been to actually was, it was a panel on how to... um, how to grow and monetize product um, that you're putting out. So creative product, like podcast, website, that type of stuff. Um, And they did not present anything outside of this is who I am. This is what I do. This is how long I've done it. And this is what I want to do for you. And then what they did was they either allowed people to come up and ask questions and then it was fielded to the right person from the moderator or they had um, the moderator was actually monitoring Twitter feeds So that if you didn't feel comfortable coming up and asking a question, um, you could just use the hashtag and tweet at them. Um, And so it allowed so much interaction and it, you know, really was an academic, but it was a way of um, using the community to ask questions and to really use the questions to guide the conversation with people who had found success in that medium. So using the people who have expertise in a role that wasn't necessarily expert so much as it was, um, I mean, I guess a little bit expert, yes, but um, more of a give and take and a conversation, um, which was amazing. And I learned a lot and I've implemented a lot of of the practices that I've learned there. Um, I, but to that extent too, like 
that happened at smaller conventions than the larger ones that I've gone to. It was just to do interviews. And that was, I guess, in akin to like a stadium <laughs> conference. Like you go there for the people. I went there and met some of the contributors to my site and we had fun and it was just about the community and I did my work and that was the best of the conference versus a smaller conference where the real focus is the real focus is just on um, expanding on ideas and bringing new ideas and talking and really getting into the nitty gritty of the things that you love. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's deep. That's deep. JR, I know you, you got some stuff over there, man. What do you, what do you, what are you thinking on all this? I, I mean, I, as I was listening to Kathy and Kate describe those kinds of panels, right? That's what I was, I even earlier, that's what I was saying would be most interesting to me, right? Like that kind of, and I'm even thinking, Dan, about the, the one that we did together a couple of years ago at, at Cruise, uh, what oh, was that, yeah. Cruise 17? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we talked for quite a while about pop culture and theology, but I, by far the most fun thing for me was the Q and A. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, when people could actually dialogue and process and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I just, I think that, I think that, it's all combined together where we talk about learning styles, we talk about what's effective presentation, where we talk about representing a plurality of voices and experiences. Uh, we just, the, the sort of sage on the stage style is so stale. And I think the main reason it's being kept alive in our Christian conference circuit is because that's what, that's what our Sunday morning worship still looks like. Ew. Um, yeah. And, and so I think until we're willing to reevaluate, there's so many assumptions built up in that. I mean, it's, it's who get, who gets to share wisdom, right? Who gets to speak on behalf of God, uh, particularly in Christian circles, right? It's, it's all layered into that. Right. And there, there's, there's a perception that if someone's on a platform, they have more to offer than someone who's not on the platform. And that to me is, is the core issue. Um, uh, they have a better connection to God. I mean, I, I try to tell my congregation as often as possible. Like I don't have the red, you know, the uh, red phone in my office that goes straight to heaven or anything like that. Like that's, it's not how this thing works. Um, and trying to decenter, decenter who gets to speak is, is a difficult thing in any kind of an institution, but the kinds of conferences I'm the most interested in are the ones that do that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think I would, I would much rather spend $500 to travel to and attend a weekend with a bunch of my peers working on issues than to listen to a bunch of famous speakers who are good at speaking, say things I already have heard before in more interesting and exciting ways. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so if a conference, if a conference doesn't skew more towards the group of peers in a room than a sage on a stage, I, I'm just not even going to look at it. Yeah, but there's still such an audience for that, right? I think that's the. Uh, okay, so I'm going to relate this to movies. Uh, <laughs> Come on. So there, there are. I'm grossly oversimplifying, but like there are, there are two kinds of movies. There are the trusted formula and then there are the artsy films and like in horror, right? Like 
they're like a slasher movie can come out and do nothing interesting just right. reproduce all the same beats. I mean, we have we have a flood now that horror is in a renaissance. We have a flood of PG-13 <laughs> goreless horror movies that aren't scary at all. All they are are jump scare after jump scare after jump scare. They make them for $5 million and they make $100 million at the box office. They're insanely profitable. Or you have something that is genuinely scary. So I would point to something like Hereditary that mm-hmm. does so much more than that is it makes you think it does things to you. Like it makes you look inside yourself. It's challenging. It's demanding. And in my view, they're not even comparable, which one is better, but I'll tell you which one makes more money. Right. Right. Um, because people don't want to look inside themselves. Dan, uh, I think it was a tweet you did a, a, a few days ago where you said people don't want a prophetic voice. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's just it. Like we don't like most people and certainly most evangelicals don't actually want to be challenged and don't want to be changed. Um, we want a speaker to come up and tell us that we're like 90% good. We're 10% bad. And if all we really need to do is like try a little harder and give it a little bit more elbow grease and then it'll be fine. Um, but we don't need to make any big changes. We don't need to like do any foundational shifts in our thinking our our communities don't need to look any different. Our worship doesn't need to look any different. We don't have to do the hard work to actually become a people of justice. Like, we're fine. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, which is, again, that's like essentially the jump scare thing, right? Like, yeah. I, I can I can, I can can zing you good and step on your toes a little bit and make you go, woo, that speaker had a, well, a little <laughs> spicy. Um, but I don't actually leave you changed. <laughs> Oh, or, man. I mean, Dan, I, again, I listened to your episode where you, your, your, uh, what was that? The CCDA? Yeah, that was where it. Where you did your talk from that. Like that was way more prophetic and step, certainly step, it did more than step on my toes. Like it was deeply challenging since I'm a straight white male pastor. Um, and I can imagine that there were plenty of people at that conference that that didn't sit well with because you didn't just, just a few, it, you <laughs> didn't just make people comfortable. Like you actually did, you actually challenged you know, she challenged me and I wasn't even a part of that organization. Um, so I, like, yeah, yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm, you've sort of hit where I'm despairing right now. I'm like, <laughs> as a church leader, people in the pews don't want to be, they don't want to come to church and be uncomfortable. Right. Like they yeah. want to come to church and be told they're fine. Um, and again, they want to, they want to feel a little bad, but feel a little bad in a way that's controllable and in a way that's up to them. Um, you know, if they, if they just, you know, maybe like read their Bible one more time this week, they'll, they'll be fine. You know, and they don't um, want to feel so bad that their football game later that afternoon is ruined. Right. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, right. Temporary bad. So that over lunch with church friends, you can feel better about yourself and then go on. Or maybe it. even by the closing song, when I get that yeah. emotional uplift again, right? Like that. Yes. Um, and I get it. Like I get it. I don't like, I don't like feeling bad either. I don't like recognizing these big, ugly pieces of myself that really need to be dragged out and worked on. Like, it's not fun. It's not easy. uh, It doesn't make you feel good about yourself. Like, I get it. But like, if, if, if we're not doing that, what are we doing? I think one of the things that I've learned over the past, I'm going to say about past two years um, especially now in the 
the advent of streaming, live streaming panels and stuff. And I'm just throwing this out there as like food for thought and, and just for people listening, if they don't like being uncomfortable, um, nine times out of 10, the person who is presenting those big, large glaring issues is also really, really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but it's something that they have to do. Yeah. And I've been in rooms where the panel was about how do you protect yourself as a streamer of color? And mm. it was streamed. And the chat was proof on why you need protection. Right. Right. And the chat that was going was targeting and harassing and belittling the presenters. But if so it's kind of like understanding. And I think this is like probably the biggest takeaway that I've learned from it too. Cause like, I still like, I'm, I'm a woman of color. I'm Latina, but like I speak English. That's my privilege. I'm educated. That's my privilege. I still have realms of privilege that I need to identify with myself. So there are some situations where I don't like being comfortable. Um, but if I, I also need to understand that the person presenting something to me is also uncomfortable in that situation. And I think a lot of the times, what happens in academic settings is we have this false sense of, well, we're pushing boundaries and we're doing this and we want to question everything. But then when it comes to people questioning our work, we don't want those questions because right. we don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable, but we never realize that the people also questioning sometimes will also feel uncomfortable themselves. And in, in like, in what you've brought up JR and like, you know, in just the general discussions of race and stuff, a lot of the times, depending on the room, the person who's presenting those issues is probably feeling uncomfortable, probably feeling unsafe, probably looking to any faces of color in the room to just feel like they're okay. <laughs> you know, um, and so I think that that's also an important perspective to understand. And so I think inherently when you have conventions that or conferences that are price restrictive or are leaning towards one political ideology or religious ideology, you end up self-selecting so that it also becomes just impossible to have those conversations, whether people want to have them or not. Mm, 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 mm. Man. <laughs> That's deep. I love the the man. That's that's a lot of rich stuff here uh, with the movie analogy and whatnot. Uh, um, wow. Well, this has been good. This has been good. What uh, as as we're as I'm wrapping up here. I mean, because this is this has been a great conversation. I mean, it, it, you know, and it's helped me too. I mean, again, in all transparency. I mean, I one of my one of my problems with going on social media sometimes is seeing all the folks who got invited to places that I didn't get invited to. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that pisses me off. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and lie. And some, sometimes I'd be like, Hey, why'd y'all niggas invited me? God damn it, I could have said that. Y'all niggas got to invite them other people over there, man. Damn. I'm not going to lie. That's how I get when, um, so with podcasting, like you obviously want to get people, um, who have the certain voice to like voice something um, right. that you're not in your position of. Um, mm. But that was happening to me during um, Star Wars when they announced the Cassie and Andor show. And I'm like, I am Latina. Let me be the Latina on your podcast to yes. talk about this. And every time anybody else got chosen, I was just like, really? Yes. Really? <laughs> have I not voiced how, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, no, and that's exactly it, Kate. And that's exactly it. And then that ties again back, back into my own insecurity that I've dealt with, like feeling like, 
you know, I came to college late. I didn't do the traditional out of high school and, you know, going in. So I felt like, man, I was behind on that. I was, I felt like I didn't get a good training in my PhD program. I mean, like I had to go to AAR on my own. I had to introduce myself to uh, scholars and all that stuff on my own. I didn't have a, an Anthony Penn introducing me right to those circles, which is what a lot of, you know, PhD students get and whatnot. I didn't even start presenting it at, at, uh, at conferences like that until, what, six years after I graduated with my doctorate. So I have, the, I carry this thing. So I always feel like, man, I'm behind in times. I should have been writing about holy hip hop crap, you know, back in 2004, but instead I, you know, I have a book coming out in 2018 about it. And that's stuff that I was talking about 12 years ago. So those are all things that I carry with myself that I'm trying to deal with and not project on other people. But then that's also a frustration of mine that I get with, where are we at in, in conferences? So you y'all have laid down some really good thought processes here about, you know, what, you know, in terms of, you know, what, what conferences look for or, or what they may look like, uh, you know, in the next 10 years. Um, what are some final thoughts here on the worth? What gets y'all going in the morning? What keeps y'all hopeful um, in a time when I just see a, I saw a headline that comes came across here on uh, the Washington Post where it's saying that um, thousands of federal workers face no pay, but, you know, Trump appoints appointees get a $10,000 raise, you know, while, you know, all these other cats are out of work, they're getting $10,000 raises. What, uh, what, what keeps y'all, what, what keeps y'all motivated? What keeps y'all going? And, and, and I'm particularly interested in all three of y'all's opinions on this. Like what, what, what makes it worth it? Anybody can start. <laughs> That's rough. <laughs> right? It's not like we're all jumping in with our answers. Uh, I can go first. Um, it's something that my grandma used to say to my mom, and then my mom said to me, um, no se habla, no se oye. Mm. So, no se habla, no se oye. You don't talk, you're not going to get heard. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, for me, there... Are, there's a lot of feeling helpless and leaving my PhD program, not completing my PhD was the scariest thing I've, I've done that I've made it an actual choice to do. Um, but I wasn't being heard and I decided to make my own avenue to be heard. Um, and so when things get, bad and I see stuff happening I just remind myself that like no matter how rough it gets and no matter how uncomfortable I feel I have to just keep talking I have to just keep saying something because if I I mean if in if anybody falls follows me on Twitter I yell about let the next issues a lot um and I, I use it. yell because they're loud tweets and they're gonna keep being that way because it's it's something people need to see and do. I write a lot about, um, although I don't do academic writing anymore, I, I do analyze popular culture and I do write a lot about representation and um, specifically Latinx representation in media. And for me, it's so hard to affect the macro level that I just try to affect the micro. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just try to find little ways that I can just keep putting myself out there. And sometimes I get hit back. Um, you know, sometimes I have to, you know, 
block a whole bunch of people or sometimes I don't get that press pass that I definitely believe I should have gotten. Um, but if I don't keep talking, I'm just going to keep being unheard. And so for me, like when things get rough and I just think back to like what my mom said, what my grandma said, I'm pretty sure my mom wishes she hadn't told me that because she made me a very loud child um, who <laughs> talks back a lot, but um, it's paying off now and it, it, it just helps. <laughs> That's good. It's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, it's, it's very similar. It's, um, it, it, I I keep saying things and writing things and speaking and in part because even after 20 years of doing this I still hear back from particularly Asian American women who are like I've never heard a woman an Asian American woman preach or you're the first Asian American Christian author I've read. And I think, wow, (laughs) in 20 years, you know, I've been doing this in 20 years and I'm still hearing things like that. I think very much like you, Kate, it's that, um, it's about representation and it comes for me from that place of my faith that says, uh, who I am as a Korean American woman is reflected in the kingdom of God. And when it's not reflected here in um, conferences or churches and books, uh, that's something to be reckoned with. And and so I do that in part because uh, hopefully one day there won't be so many firsts, right? And that there will be many more voices out there. So that that's what gets me up and keeps it going is that there's, I think there's still such a strong need to address these issues from different perspectives. Hmm. Yeah. That's a good word too. I like that. Brother JR. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm on a, a, a pretty similar trajectory to Kate. I think I just, I, I get, it's easy for me, I think, with my personality to get obsessed with the macro level stuff and to think that if if I'm not making an impact on a macro level, which I'm not, uh, then I'm not making an impact. And over the last year, uh, I've been really, really challenged to um, to use my voice where it matters. Uh, a little nod to Kathy and her work there. Um, so, I mean, like this, this last year I joined my local city government, I'm on our arts commission in our little city. And I did that because that's a place where I can have influence and, and I can, you know, meet the people in our city that are making policies that affect people who I know where I live, you know? Uh, and so that's kind of what I'm trying to do is just, yeah, look at where I do have influence and am I, am I doing what I can do there and not getting caught up in the fact that I can't do a lot on a, a bigger level. So that's, you know, in my, in my own church, in my own community, in my own little corner of the internet, you know, that kind of stuff. So, uh, and, and I do see positive changes there. Um, so I try not to keep a tally of how many white guys I trigger on Facebook, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's another way to measure metrics if you want. 
<laughs> triggering the we're, we're, uh, on social we're a, media. We're, we're a delicate bunch, and it's easy to trigger us, you know. So. Um, <laughs> Oh, man. Well, y'all, thank you so much for taking the time at y'all busy schedules and, you know, and having this conversation. Thanks for getting us together. When is the Profane Faith Conference, Dan? Ah, Ooh, yes. Tell me. That's right. <laughs> I'll invite all y'all as keynotes, right? The sages. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah, well, oddly enough, I mean, it was uh, at the beginning of last year. Uh, matter of fact, it was probably a year ago when I attended the Mystic Soul Conference, which um, their whole thing was like decentering whiteness and really involving the intersections of, of everything. And so it was it was a very interesting conference in a good in a good way. Um, um, and so I'm, I'd be curious to see how that does, because the other side of it is, is that I know there's a lot of boutique conferences uh, that start off strong and then, you know, they lose, uh, you know, just people showing up to it, partly because of the expense and just certain people start feeling like, well, I've heard that before and, and whatnot, but yeah, profane faith, their conference. Yeah. I'll have to consider that. Get a whole society of (laughs) profane faithers. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you guys. Yeah. It's been awesome. Thanks, Thanks, Dan. Well, there you have it. Four perspectives on what Christian conferences and what conferences in general might and could look like moving into the future. I still have a lot of questions, and obviously an hour or so podcast isn't going to necessarily come up with any strong solutions. But my challenge to us, as you were listening to this, and particularly for those of you who are wondering what Christian conferences mean, is... How do you actually spend your money with this? I think money still has a lot to play in this. And I think that as we spend our dollars, what do we spend our dollars on when it comes to resources and knowledge? Who are the people that we look towards when it comes to understanding uh, information, theology, knowledge, those folks that we consider experts And so those are really areas that I think need to be challenged because at the end of the day, in media and advertising, 101 suggests that if an ad is no longer getting any more attention, then it just needs to go away because it's just taking up space. And at the end of the day, if conferences that we really choose that we want to go to, that we even still want to have those, if we're spending investing our money in those, then those are the ones that are going to get attention. I would hope that in 2019, we begin to kind of take a turn towards a better understanding of what gaining that knowledge and gaining that information looks like in terms of conferencing. That would be my hope. I would hope that we could move forward on some things. We'll see. The year is still young. This has been Profane Faith, y'all.